An old saying goes something like this, if it moves, tax it, if it moves too fast, regulate it, and if it stops moving, subsidize it. Artificial intelligence is in that fast-moving stage, but no one seems quite to have any sense of how or even why to regulate it. My next guest has a few clues, though. He's Senior Vice President and General Manager of MITRE Labs, and he joins me now, Dr. Charles Clancy. Good to have you with us. Great to be here. And you have written with a team here, put together some really strong recommendations for what are the cogent ways to maybe regulate artificial intelligence, but let's back up for a moment to the whys. It seems to be a lot of people have a vague notion or fear of this thing, and it's not any single thing. It's a lot of things. So tell us the background here. Sure. I'd say over the last six months, we've really seen AI spring from something that was very much researcher-focused and very small community focused on it to something that's now much more ubiquitous in public consciousness. And it really has to do with the growth of large language models and broadly accessible tools like ChatGPT that have, I think, shifted our understanding of the relationship between humans and AI. In some sense, it's parallel to how Bitcoin made people realize there's something called blockchain and cryptocurrency out there. ChatGPT made people realize the reality of AI. Yeah, and certainly AI has been incrementally improving almost every imaginable industry in small ways. But I think the visible leap forward that we saw with ChatGPT is one that's, I think, causing people to think that we maybe need to do more. Right, because earlier AI applications did augmentation of human activity. You call these newer ones AI with agency, that it can almost act on its own. Exactly. I think there's kind of three tiers here. One is the AI that's already around us and involved in almost everything we do digitally. And that's where AI is just a small component in a much more complex system. Think about an autonomous vehicle, right? It's got cameras that it's using to detect the road, other cars, traffic signs and lights. All of that is AI that's pretty well understood. We know how to test it. We know how to train it. We know how to assure it. But these uh, sort of more almost um, AI with agency or AI that can execute tasks autonomously that just sort of lives out on the Internet is sort of this new frontier. And as people worry about half-truths or non-truths or fake news, there's a million words for it, we have seen that these generative programs can create something that looks truthful, but to any expert or someone that delves deeply or people that have like created their own biographies using it and see the falsehoods in there, it's not the machine deliberately lying, but it could be made to do that too. And that's one of the concerns. Of course. Yeah. The role of AI in accelerating mis- and disinformation is a major concern, I think, that, that many people share. And it's not so much that we can now create an image that we never could create before. Certainly, there were digital artists who could create completely convincing images. It's just now that an untrained amateur can create something that is undetectably different from that of real and also, the people who do this for a living, the propagandists, the mis- and disinformation folks, now have tools that can allow them to do 10, 100 times more than they could before. Yeah, it's like people that can get 10 people together on Twitter, and you'd think the whole world is saying something when it's 10 people on Twitter. Exactly. The same holds true for cyber uh, as well, right? So large language models have the potential to take amateur hackers and turn them into world-class and take world-class hackers and turn them into people who can hack hundreds of targets at once, right? That's other companion concern. And before we get into some of the details of your regulatory recommendations, and there's a good list, I think, of about seven of them, what's the methodology by which your group arrived at this framework? 
Well, first, I think we took the approach that we already have a lot of regulatory agencies that have significant responsibility for either regulated industries or critical infrastructure. And they're the domain experts already. And AI is really just kind of the next phase. Many of these industries have already seen the migration from hardware to software, from software to AI. And so they're the most equipped to understand the context and the risks of their industry. And that's where the regulation should be happening rather than some new agency that would be out trying to regulate AI in ubiquity. We're speaking with Dr. Charles Clancy. He's Senior Vice President and General Manager of MITRE Labs. And let's get into some of the framework items. You have a list of possible regulatory approaches. And what are some of the highlights of those? Yeah. So first, I think we want to empower the existing regulatory agencies to really incorporate AI as part of the existing framework. So good examples would be aviation. Aviation has gone from a very hardware-centric model to things like the Boeing 787, which increasingly relied on software and updatable software. That was a big change in how we had to think about certifying and regulating aviation. And you can really think about AI as the next generation of that in terms of a whole new class of software with new capabilities. I think the FDA is another great example as you think about how we regulate medical devices. We already have a shift from hardware now to software-based medical device regulation, right? AI is that next frontier. And so I think the first is really about helping those agencies understand in a systematic way what the risks are and then be able to apply that effectively to their industry. Yeah, those agencies have their domains, so they should become expertise in AI in that domain. For example, the FDA has a program now to test whether AI can be used to speed up drug approval, for example, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And then there's roles for agencies like NIST, who are responsible for technology standards in general, for, to create the frameworks and the standards that those other agencies could apply in their regulatory process. And establishing liability for AI-caused harms, that's where you're going to really get into the political buzzsaws and cross-currents of Washington. Tell us more about that one. Yeah, from a liability perspective, we're seeing this already in the software domain, right, where the national cybersecurity strategy that came out of the White House earlier this year suggested that we start holding software vendors more accountable for vulnerabilities in their code, not just the companies that deploy and operate that software. And I think as we go into this AI space, it's still open question as to who's accountable, right? Is it the people who design the model, train the model, deploy the model, or use the model? Uh, where is the liability in that chain? And, and we really just don't have answers to that from a legal perspective yet. Right, because someone could design a model, and it's a perfectly good model that doesn't know A from B, and then someone would feed it deliberately biased training data to make it do something that would seem, wow, okay, it works great, not knowing the bias that was fed into it. And so that's not really the model creator, but it's rather the trainer that is the issue. Exactly. So the, the industry today is adopting what's called model cards. Um, and so this is when you create an AI model, you have to say how you trained it and how you tested it and what assumptions you had about its use. And you can release the model into the wild, but it, it, it's sort of a buyer beware disclaimer so that if someone uses the model in a way that it wasn't trained or wasn't intended or wasn't tested, then they know that the performance may be degraded or it may, it may not work as expected. So the first step is kind of this nutrition labeling for AI. So people at least are informed in their, their use of the models. Yeah, it seems like the aviation analogy is an apt one because the earlier planes were just cables and pulleys and you could twist a rudder back here and it would make the thing move in front and you knew your system was good because it was just cables and pulleys. Whereas now they're just these software stuffed black boxes and people getting on presume they'll do what they say they will do. But as we found out in some recent incidents and regulatory and liability disasters in aviation, 
it doesn't always work out that way. A hundred percent. And I think you could imagine all of the innovation that we have today in autonomous vehicles around being able to do machine perception, orchestration control. Imagine applying that in an aviation context, right? You'd have even greater concerns from a safety perspective. You know, a very old form of certification for the consumer who can't test meat and produce themselves is the USDA stamp. So maybe do you envision that type of output when this is all done and the agencies have the expertise they need to regulate that there would be some kind of equivalent of the Pennsylvania Agriculture Department or the USDA stamp on AI-driven products? So I think there have been calls for third-party auditing and certification of AI models. I think that can be part of the ecosystem, but I, I guess I really want to tie it back to the agencies who understand the context of the areas that they're regulating in helping bring that context forward. I would be very concerned about a third-party AI auditor who's responsible for auditing AI in every imaginable application because they just lack the necessary domain expertise to make the the needed risk-informed decisions. So like I said, I think that role is important, but it should be sort of managed through the existing regulatory functions we have. And we could go on for hours. This report is pretty detailed, and it gives the pros and cons and possible approaches to many ways. Who's reading it? Where are you promulgating it? And any reaction to it so far? We have been circulating it, certainly among the U.S. government agencies that MITRE supports through our federally funded research and development centers, working at the White House, at the Hill, and getting a lot of positive feedback, trying to do something constructive that is implementable within our current government regulatory ecosystem, and so far, a lot of interest. So um, we'll see how things go on the Hill with the, the sort of current legislative session, but I expect some of these things will find their way into legislation. Dr. Charles Clancy is Senior Vice President and General Manager of MITRE Labs. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his AI regulatory framework at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people 
and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces, when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that 
and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God, and that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay. I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. 
And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.